Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Tim Jackson to the podcast. Tim is Professor of Sustainable Development at the University of Surrey and Director of the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity, which builds on his 30 years of multidisciplinary research on sustainability and decades of policy experience, in particular his work as Economics Commissioner on the UK Sustainable Development Commission. Tim is the author of Prosperity Without Growth, a seminal text that challenges conventional economic wisdom of endless economic growth on a finite planet. So thank you very much, Tim, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Yeah, pleasure, Fergal. Glad to be here. Great. Maybe before we begin, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at the moment. Um, so I guess our sort of overarching question, if if you like, is... is um, is a very simple one. <laughs> what can prosperity possibly look like in a world of environmental and social limits? And um, it, it's about what makes for the good life on the one hand, but it's also about living on a finite planet on the other hand. And sometimes those two things don't entirely go together because in the process of living a good life, we consume lots of resources. And um, if we're not too careful, we trash the planet. Um, climate change, deforestation, the loss of species, the human expansion, the relentless growth of the economy. And that was our model of what prosperity should be for quite a long time. And it's kind of coming to the end of its usefulness. So our job really is to um, think of prosperity differently, think of what it might mean instead, and to develop the tools and the policies and the institutions that might further that idea of a sustainable, a, a lasting prosperity. That's fascinating. Uh, I think uh, many people uh, have criticised over the years uh, people who are concerned about the environment or the limits of the economy by by the the the, the, the not having a, a positive vision of what an economy or world would look like, rather than the uh, you know the, the the more negative and and dystopian visions. Um, just before we go into uh, you know the, some of your the work you've been doing, I'm just wondering, could you maybe rank what you think are a few of the biggest uh, sustainability challenges where facing and how, how how big how big you think they <laughs> <Yeah>. are <laughs> well <laughs> we could talk about uh, that for a long I, time I think, but <laughs> um, you know the one that's obviously the most well known i suppose is is the climate change challenge and and the idea that you know we should try and limit um the warming of the atmosphere to one and a half degrees above what it was before we started out on all this industrial stuff um that was that was a an aspirational agreement by pretty much every nation in the world at the time in Paris um, a couple of years ago. And, and when you look at what that means, limiting, limiting the, the global warming to 1.5 degrees, it, it turns out you basically have to get rid of all carbon going into the atmosphere, effectively all carbon going into the atmosphere by, um, you know, a couple of decades 
at the most. And that's extraordinary because our entire civilization really has been built around putting carbon into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels. And that's so essentially we, we have to not just stop burning fossil fuels. We actually have to start capturing carbon out of the atmosphere somehow. So that's, that's a big, that's a big challenge. And, you know, you could argue, well, we're not going to get to 1.5 degrees. Um, that's, that's possible. We won't. Uh, could we limit it to two degrees? That's already a pretty dystopian world. It's a tricky place to be. Three and four degrees, you're looking at, you know, a world that is potentially radically different from the one that we have known for, for centuries. And, and so, you know, that, that is definitely a biggie um in terms of what it means for changing society and um doing things differently i think there's also you know there's other couple of uh, of big ones as well i mean i would say really you know the, the the attack if you like you could almost call it that the attack on other species who share the planet with us has kind of reached proportions that you know according to all the historical anthropological biological evidence we haven't seen for for millennia the rate at which species are being lost largely because of the impact of human activity on on their habitats and and on their way of life that that's also a pretty pretty scary thing and you might think well you know what did the nematode worm ever do for me um it kind of gave us our life and our livelihood in a way because uh, you know even the humblest of creatures are implicated in, for example, creating the soil from which we grow the crops to produce the food that we eat in order to live. So there's a, there's a, you know, there's a moral point there. Is it, is it right to trash all the other species who live on the planet? But there's also a kind of, you know, prudential point. Is it actually in our best interests to do that? So I would say those, those were the, the top concerns uh, i think there's also a resource concern perhaps you know what happens when we run out of some of these critical resources that we need to make our iphones work for example to make touch screens work to to keep electricity running through the pipes to to um, build our our infrastructures and our architectures how much um uh, do you think of the problems that we're facing now? Are, uh, can we lay at the feet of economic growth? I mean, the economy, uh, the growth in, in, in carbon dioxide associated from you know, post in the industrial revolution, growth and you know huge growth in, in the economy that we've seen in the in the last uh, hundred years and more. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the the the, the I guess double edged uh, sword that is economic growth? Yes, uh, I mean. You know, in some ways, economic growth has given us the lifestyles that we have at the moment. It's done. It's done enormous good in society. If you think about, you know, the transition from a sort of more or less peasant life to where we are today, and and the the quality of food, at least in principle, that we have access to, the the quality of housing, the the ability to keep ourselves warm. I mean, even in my lifetime, you know, the the network of of heating systems that heats our homes and keeps us comfortable is is a sort of extraordinary transition when I think about it, Um, even in personal terms. Um, And it's done, you know, we've done wonders in medicine. We've got fantastic science. We've got endless choice. And all of those things were really made possible by this um, expansion of of the possibilities for production for creating stuff, and that in itself was made possible, of course, by the availability of um, high quality 
fuels, mainly fossil fuels. And so, you know, that's that's been very much a story of, you know, the success of, of science and the success of technology in delivering an improved quality of life. And I, I don't think it's ever right, really, to just entirely knock that and say, oh, we shouldn't have done that. We should have stayed, you know, back in the caves or, or out in the fields or whatever. Um, that's That's not a very constructive place to be. I think it's right to acknowledge what progress we've made, but it's also right to recognize that that progress has come at a bit of a price. And, and the price is very precise in relation to fossil fuels. If fossil fuels gave us all that, they also gave us carbon emissions and that caused climate change. So, so this, that's, and that's our challenge, really. That our challenge is to come up with a, a sort of model of, of, of progress that doesn't continually sort of burn and use up and discard more stuff and and yet that gives us the kind of quality of life the prosperity um that we aspire to and that actually poor countries you know many people in in much poorer countries than we are are still in the process of aspiring to reach a level you know even a fraction of of the kind of quality of life that we have so you know you can't don't forget two billion people out there without you know access to secure clean water supplies or to um secure electricity supplies and that's basic things have gone missing in a quarter of the world's population um while you know the richest one billion or so um have if you like almost a a surfeit of 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 stuff a kind of a kind of affluenza that we're arguably living in in a in a modern consumer society so it's a, it's a challenge it's it's um you know it's not economic growth is not either unambiguously bad or simply good it, it's a kind of it's a kind of it is as you said a double-edged Yes, yes. And as you, you, you mentioned, the problems today still uh, for such a large proportion of the, the planet and, and indeed over the last, uh, since the, China's economic reform, some 800 million or I, I don't know what the figure uh, lifted out of poverty according to the World Bank and so forth, which has obviously been, you know, ma- massive. Now, can you talk about GDP, uh, conventional measure of economic activity? I mean, how useful is that as a measure, particularly when we think about economic prosperity and well-being there's a wonderful quote about the, the gdp that's 50 years old and it's a, that, that measures neither our wit nor our learning neither our wisdom nor our courage neither our passion nor our devotion to our country it measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile and that that wasn't said by uh, it was kennedy it's robert kennedy and it's you know it's a sort of extraordinary testament to how long it takes for these things to kind of filter through even when a you know a visionary leading politician is able to see the writing on the wall it's taken us half a century to understand actually that this gdp measure is not a particularly good measure of progress what it measures is the busyness of the economy how much we're producing how much we're consuming how much being traded you know that kind of stuff element of our lives is pretty good at measuring that but even in that case it doesn't measure for example how fast things are wearing out it doesn't measure uh, the inequality in the access to those goods and services it doesn't measure things that go on 
you know, really important things that go on outside the paid economy, like looking after our kids and taking care of our homes and, and of our elderly relatives. So all of that sits outside this wonderful measure of the busyness of the economy. And yet we chase that one single figure, that GDP number, as though it were, you know, top place in the premiership or whatever, you know, we, we, and it is almost like that. It's almost like a, a kind of schoolboy, school ground, and it often is boys, competition to be the best at a single number. Um, and it, and it's, it's kind of pathological, really. I mean, I've, you know, I've been in meetings with senior treasury officials who I've gone through this whole, you know, idea that the, the, maybe the planet's finite, so our econ- economic expansion might be limited. And and they, they say, you know, on one occasion, I remember going in and having this conversation about all this stuff, and they came out and said, well, hmm, so what's that going to be like when I turn up at the G20 and our GDP has slipped a notch? And it, it was as kind of basic as, as that, as, you know, somehow status is linked to this one rather ineffective number and that if that goes down i'm not going to be seen up in the big boys ranking anymore i'm going to i'm going to be slipping down into into some different place but actually the ranking never made any sense there's no point in chasing a number if it's the wrong indicator you can do something incredibly efficiently but if it's the wrong thing to do you still make your life worse and that's that's the challenge really of 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 this um agenda is that we've We've taken to measuring it for some very good reasons with an indicator that is basically flawed. And even though we knew that 50 years ago with with Robert Kennedy, um, we haven't yet done enough to change it. Yes, yes. And I spoke uh, earlier in the series with Sabine uh, Alcara at, at Oxford, who, who's done work around the multidimensional poverty index. And it's, I guess, another way of broadening out uh, measures to take into account, you know, uh, things that matter when you come to, to, to looking at poverty. So is there uh, a, a, a growing momentum to uh, to broaden the measure, uh, measure the, the, you know, to, to, to use other measures rather than GDP. And clearly it's tied in with national economies, but, you know, uh, international economic organizations, the OECD and IMF and, and, and organizations like that. I mean, uh, wh- how do you see the lay of the land? There is a there is a movement to do that. I'm not sure that I would describe it as a growing momentum. It's It's had its phases of being more and less Active and so actually we've had, for example, the Human Development Index that the UN has measured for you know quite a long time, several decades. Um, And in you know about a decade ago, there's a flurry of interest in different kinds of measurements. So President Sarkozy, as was then the president of France, put together a big uh, commission headed up by international economists on what might need to be done, and some of that got rolled out afterwards. Not not just in in France actually, but in other countries as well. And then a few years ago, you know, we decided that might be a good thing to measure. Uh, national well-being um, in some other form, and so we we put a bit of effort in in the UK into into kind of measuring life satisfaction um, in different kinds of ways, and all of these things help because they give you a bit a bit of a better picture. I, I would say, in a way, that the you know the multi-index dep- um, poverty and multi-deprivation poverty indices have a, have a really good 
view on things. In fact, my my work on prosperity actually started and and was kicked off by some kind of groundbreaking work on poverty back in the 1970s where people who were working on poverty and researching it understood they began to understand that poverty is not just an absence of money it's an absence of of access it's an absence of community it's an absence of um the the ability to to be in the workplace it's an absence of jobs it's an absence of of um security in the family it's it's an absence of of a sense of meaning and purpose in life, which which happens in the worst and the most deprived communities. That you have this kind of meaning. Not not only don't you have a, a nice house to live in and a good car to drive and and all the status symbols of modern society, but you're excluded from being an active participant in society, and that's that's a huge poverty. And the opposite of that, you know, the ability to participate in society, the ability to have access to community, all of these things that aren't really measurable by the GDP, these are good indicators of prosperity. And they're things that we can we can look at, we can quantify, we can actually come up with some relatively objective measures, or we can look at people's feelings and responses to them. All of these things, I think, are are out there and they're being developed. At the moment, I would say we're in a little bit of a quiet place. I'm kind of hoping that the 50th anniversary of Kennedy's quote is going to kickstart a little bit more interest in it because there was, I would say, more interest in that 10 years ago than there is at the moment. Now, I guess the question of economic growth is deeply connected with economic development and and poverty alleviation. Uh, We've seen tremendous economic growth in China in recent decades, for example, which seems to have lifted uh, some 800 million or so Chinese out of poverty. Uh, economic growth is clearly absolutely essential for the poorest countries in the world. You know, it's really interesting to look at evidence in in this kind of argument and to see actually where economic growth makes a difference. And it's very, very clear when you look at that evidence that in the poorest parts of the world, if you increase people's incomes, it doesn't just bring them out of narrowly defined poverty it really does improve the quality of their lives so you you note for example as incomes rise from virtually nothing to around about 10 or 15 thousand dollars per capita that life expectancy more or less doubles over that rise it really you know you you improve health outcomes that much that life expectancy you know moves from the low 40s to the even to the 80s and you, you you get countries with an income quite a lot lower than the UK or the US or Ireland, and they have life expectancies that are equivalent to the kind of life expectancy we have in the most advanced countries in the in the world. But below that, as incomes get very low, life expectancy absolutely plummets. Same thing with infant mortality, the same thing with maternal morbidity, the same thing with education. You know, all of these indicators of success move very fast when you make very poor people a little bit richer. And then the graphs all show something really weird, which is all those gains start tailing off, they start diminishing. And in some cases, as I've said, you can find you know, countries which are which are six times richer than than uh, the countries on the on the peak of that curve, um, with lower quality outcomes, a lower life expectancy in the UK than in Chile, for example, um, higher 
infant mortality in the US than in um, some countries in Eastern Europe even. So there, there, are, there are these weird anomalies in the statistics which suggest that income growth matters up to a certain point and then it begins to, um, it, it, the, the advantages of it begin to diminish. And in fact, sometimes they diminish so far that you're, you could be worse off in a richer country than you are in a, in a poorer one in, in certain respects. And, and in the rich countries in particular, of course, some of that change in something like life expectancy is because uh, of what, what's now being called lifestyle diseases, non-communicable diseases, not, not diseases that we catch something and then we die, but diseases which are about um, the, the factors, the lifestyle factors like diet and exercise and, um, and um, living conditions that reduce our, our uh, vitality um, and, and make us more susceptible to, to cancer, to diabetes, to strokes, to heart disease and so on and so forth. So those, you know, that, that's, a, that's a real puzzle. It sort of does suggest that there's a, we've kind of gone past the point and we need to somehow find our way back into balance with those things that contribute real quality of life, real prosperity. So clearly, um, the uh, ma massive economic growth we've seen, uh, particularly in, in, in recent decades, have had a significant uh, impact, uh, negative impact on, on, on the environment, many of the environmental boundaries and so forth. Now, many people, uh, while worrying about these uh, issues, are optimistic that we can have some kind of green growth. What's your view? Green growth. So <laughs> what is the green growth? I like to think of green growth as really we can have our cake and still eat it. <laughs> you know, we can eat our cake and still have it. We can have eaten all the goodies in the world and yet we can still achieve this wonderful outcome of, 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 a, of a planet that's livable and habitable for future generations. It's a very much, you know, have-have uh, kind of philosophy and it's very attractive for that reason because it sort of says you know we don't have to do anything about the existing economic structure that we don't have to worry about not having growth anymore we can all have the best possible access to all the goods that we might want and yet we can become so clever technologically that we can remove all the danger, all the environmental impact from that. So we can decarbonize our electricity system, we can dematerialize our production system, we can recycle all our consumer waste, we can do everything that we need, in other words, to clean up uh, the kind of vision that we have of this growth-based economy and turn it into a clean growth, smart growth, sustainable growth, green growth. You know, if I had a dollar for every aphorism around a clean growth model then i'd be a very rich man um but it, it's 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 seductive you know it's kind of we don't have to mess too much guys all we have to do is be as clever as we already are and use technology to to get ourselves out of the mess and it appeals, you know, it appeals not only to the sort of the status quo in terms of keeping the economic institutions and the economic power structures in place that already exist, 
but it also appeals to our idea that we're a very clever species. And there's no doubt, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not questioning that we are a very clever species. I'm just wondering whether we're clever enough, or in fact, actually, whether in some cases the scientific rules of the game will prevent us from being clever enough to solve all of these problems. So you can do a lot with technology but you still live on a planet in which the laws of thermodynamics exist and constrain what's possible to achieve. And, and that possibility of, of what we can achieve is, is where, again, you have to look at the data and you have to say, yes, have we been clever enough to reduce our environmental impact so far? Well, we have done it unit for unit. So our efficiency in delivering, for example, energy has improved enormously um, since the Industrial Revolution, probably about 300-fold. And that's, you know, incredible, except that, of course, our output, our scale, has also increased around about the same amount. And actually, we're not yet on a winning wicket. Our improvement is not outrunning the scale at which economic growth, the speed at which economic growth is, is growing, the scale of our economies. So our economies get bigger and bigger. We get more efficient at using resources in them, but we don't get efficient fast enough to overcome um, the impact of the expansion of our economies. And in fact, sometimes um, making ourselves more efficient actually worsens the problem because it becomes cheaper and easier to do stuff. So we do more of it. So we have, you know, a, a rebound effect from being efficient that means that we end up polluting the planet even more. And that's a really tricky place to be in. When you look at the evidence, it's not, it, you can see that it's writ large across all of the evidence over the last half a century. That's basically the story that we got more efficient, but we did masses more stuff and therefore scale outweighed efficiency. It doesn't altogether rule out what the green growth protagonists say they want, which is to um, do better in the future. And of course, we could do better. We could figure out all sorts of lovely ways to do better. I mean, I've done the numbers on this several times, in particular quite recently for the, for the second edition of, of Prosperity Without Growth when I published it last year. And, and what struck me between the first time that I published it, which was almost 10 years ago, and the, and the, and the second edition um, published last year, is that the task of running fast enough, of, of being technologically clever enough, has become harder over that period. We haven't, in the meantime, in that decade, we didn't show ourselves to be more clever, more technologically efficient, and more adept at reducing our environmental problems. Actually, the opposite is the case. In other words, we should never, ever be complacent about our technological ability to reduce the impact we're having on the planet. We have to judge that against the laws of thermodynamics on the one hand, you know, the laws of political institutions and how fast we move on the other hand, and then this cleverness that we prize so much in ourselves. And it's a form of hubris, really, to think we're so clever, we can always overcome those obstacles. We can't. We still live in a world in which the laws of thermodynamics have to hold and we have to abide by those. We have to think very clear. We have to think a little critically, I would say, about this entire green growth narrative.
Now, I'd be interested just uh, finally to get another big topic here. But, um, you know, uh, certainly in the last few decades, we've seen a very particular form of capitalist system you know, with neoliberalism, which has uh, run amok. Tied into that clearly is 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 the role of the finance, how, how that needs to change, because that seems to be uh, very much baked into or connected to this, you know, this this growth paradigm. Yeah, you're, it is. I think. I think you know. You're right. It, it's huge. Um, and it, what we've done is we've kind of hardwired a financial system that institutionalizes profit maximization in in ways that you know pay no real respect to the social costs or the environmental costs of that process. So we've got a financial system that kind of privatizes benefits, if you like, and, and socializes all the costs and risks associated with that. And that's a, that's a deeply unequal system, of course. It wouldn't be unequal if everybody had the same ownership of all the assets, if there was a kind of equal distribution of, of assets, but there clearly isn't. And, and um, what happens, therefore, is the concentration is that the system itself, the architecture of the system, tends to concentrate wealth, to drive the system harder. And then when the social costs come along, actually even like the financial crisis, the financial crisis was a social cost of a system that was basically unstable. And, and it was paid essentially by governments, by taxpayers who bailed out the financial sector, who, who expanded the national debt and, and who kept the system on the road, on the rails um, by, by paying essentially, and by future generations paying for the risks and the costs of those risks that had been generated by an unstable financial system. So that's, that's huge. But, and, and it is, you know, there is a big, there's the beginnings of a realization of that. And it is, it's, you can see in that either, depending on your degree of pessimism or optimism, you can see a sort of, you know, this is the cracks in the shiny surface of capitalism and it's falling apart. Or you can see it as actually the place to really start thinking about what investment kind of means to us. Investment is our commitment to the future. It's our commitment to future prosperity. We don't just spend everything we have now. We lay aside a portion of our incomes. We save it. We put it into projects which last over time and and will give us, or at least we hope that they will give us, a better quality of life in the future and and lay down the foundations for the prosperity of our of our kids and their kids and so there's a, there's an there's an aspect of of this which is really an opportunity to do something differently to particularly to do investment in the finance sector differently but also to do our lives differently and i think this is you know something i haven't really drawn out so far we focused a lot on the kind of negatives but actually, there's a positive story here as well, particularly in countries where, you know, we're kind of overloaded with consumerism in a sense. And and the so, and so yeah, the, I mean, we've we've spoken we've spoken a lot a lot about the the kind of negative framing of of um, the growth challenge. But there's a there's a there's also in a positive framing in terms of our 
you know, our own responses and our lives and, and a sense in which, you know, particularly in a kind of over-consumerist advanced economy, sometimes there are ways to, if you like, have more fun with less stuff, to, to live better by consuming less. And, and just a, you know, absolutely, totally anecdotal example of that, which should probably be familiar to, you know, any parents out there. I remember when my kids were a little bit younger and and taking them to a, a theme park. Now it was a, a kind of ecological theme park because it was a um, uh, had animals in it, and it was you know supposed to provide them with a kind of sense of understanding of the animal kingdom. So there was a you know there, there was a an educational aspect to it. But I remember this day really for a couple of reasons. One was that you know we were channeled through this theme park. We'd all paid our very expensive tickets at the beginning, channeled through the theme park, um, watched, uh, you know, the, 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 the snake eating a mouse and the Bonobo monkeys doing what Bonobo monkeys do. It's a little bit difficult to explain to kids actually why they're jumping on each other in quite the way that they are. Um, and we'd done all this stuff and then we were all again, and I began to notice at this stage how many fractious parents and, and screaming kids there were. And then we were all channeled out through this narrow funnel, which is called, you know, the reception area. But actually, you don't get out until you've been through the shop that sells you the fluffy toys of all the animals that you've seen. And it's pure commercialism from beginning to end. And by the time we got out, I just swore I was never going to do that sort of thing with my kids again. And then I remember, and we'd spent, I don't know, we'd spent a fortune on this. And even, even with all my principles, I couldn't really resist the, the, the plea of my kids for fluffy toys, uh, which I obviously should have done. Um, but then I remember that the second thing I remember is how the sense of relief, actually, the next day, we were all kind of a little bit frazzled by that experience and just thought, we're not going to do anything today. Let's go for a little walk on the hill outside. And we just, actually, they spent, I don't know, hours messing about via stream, doing their own thing without any input from capitalism, from consumption, from consumerism, from the expectations that we have to grow the economy. In fact, we contributed nothing to the economy that day whatsoever, except for a little bit of food that we ate. And yet they were as happy as Larry. And that to me was a real object lesson in what's possible. I think consumerism has not just risked trashing the planet has also risked kind of undermining our own creativity our own sense of connection with nature and indeed our own happiness sometimes and it, it, there's a there's a lesson in there that that sometimes um more is not always better yes absolutely i've been there <laughs> and uh, had a similar experience um yeah. that, there's tremendous momentum on 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 many uh fronts as well you know you talked about uh i mean there are, there are grassroots organizations there are commons based organizations there are you know there are lots there there is quite a lot going on even in the sphere of finance there's esg there's impact investment there's you know uh the head of the largest uh fund manager has sent a letter out was it a few weeks ago to to uh companies saying that they needed to take into account you know the esg factors and things like that and i guess there's just you could point you could find lots of uh these seed beds of of you know, inspiring change and so forth or are you optimistic uh that that you know i mean clearly we're talking about something that's unfolding on 
you know, we've we, uh, quite a, a, a long time frame, and yet we've clearly got, you know, quite a narrow window as well. Um, as you say, 1.5, even two, even, you know, getting, getting to th- beyond that, which we don't really, really want to think about. But I'm just wondering, are there a few, uh, things that, that make you optimistic that we will, uh, that there's a new, that there's a new idea, that new, there is a new paradigm really emerging, um, or that, that we will, you know, be able to create some substantive change and, 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 and reorientate ourselves. Yeah, I think it's always actually, you know, not exactly a moral obligation, but it's definitely a good idea to be optimistic. Um, you know, if you, there's a certain paralysis that sets in when you think we're all doomed and the system's broken. Um, and the system may be broken, but actually, you know, this is where actually our, our ingenuity and our creativity comes to the fore. And as you say, there are lots of those initiatives, um, particularly in the financial sector, because the financial sector was so clearly dysfunctional and was shown to be dysfunctional 10 years ago through the the crisis um, and has certainly not delivered on our need to invest in the future in the way that we've been talking about. So it's it's really heartening to see the amount that's going on there. The high-level expert group in, in the European Commission on Sustainable Finance, for example, just launched its report back in January, um, an ongoing process to implement the recommendations of that report. I advised over the last 10 years, I've advised um, companies and organizations in the financial sector. And I know for a fact that there are very, very good people, you know, bright, highly motivated, committed people working on change in those organizations. Is it happening fast enough? Clearly at the moment, not. But change of that kind isn't sort of linear anyway. It's not incremental in that sense that, you know, we make one step forward, another step forward, another step forward. Sometimes you make two steps forward, one step back. And sometimes the change actually moves very, very fast indeed. And we should never rule out that possibility. I think uh, um, optimism is a kind of, um, it's a job requirement in terms of um thinking clearly about social progress absolutely absolutely what's on your agenda now tim what what where's your focus of research what are a few of the things that you're exploring well we're, we're exploring in my i have i run a, a research center the center for the understanding of sustainable prosperity and we're actually exploring you know across that spectrum of things that we've spoken about so on the one hand we're exploring the vision what is it that people aspire to? What does prosperity mean to them? And, and how can we you know, find these ways as individuals, as communities, as a society to have more fun with less stuff, to have a, a, a less consumptive life that is equally or perhaps even more satisfying to us? And that's, you know, that's the work of sociology and psychology and anthropology. It's a social science work. Um, and, and then we've also got to figure out, of course, how to deliver the economy that could achieve that. And so there's a, a sort of harder, if you like, more quantitative uh, bit of work around modeling the economics of that, figuring out how an economy works when it's just not relentlessly consuming stuff and expanding year on year. Is there a sustainable economy out there? Is there an economy fit for purpose? And that's... Um, you know, that's that's an absolutely essential task. And what's extraordinary is that there aren't that many people doing it at the moment. But it's the task uh, that will define 
uh, whether we're successful in making this transition or not. So we're putting we're putting quite a lot of effort into that. And and the, the striking thing to me, and it's a very gratifying thing, is how um, the a younger generation of 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 researchers, of scientists, of economists is absolutely committed to that task. I have a wonderful team of people here in CUSP um, and, and, and they, they are being driven by the energy of a, of a restless younger generation who kind of sees actually that there's a better world out there and that they, they deserve to participate in creating it. So that's, that's a very, um, it's a humbling task in a way to be leading a group of people like that, but it's also extraordinarily encouraging it's a it's a very positive outlook that we carry here very exciting work i wish you the very best of success with it all and thank you for sharing all your insights today on the sustainability agenda podcast yeah pleasure fergal thank you for listening to the sustainability agenda podcast i hope you found it interesting please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on itunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes